Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Before we dive in, I want to thank our listeners, especially those who took the time to leave us a review. This one comes from Arya Taragarian. I'm so sorry if I messed it up. Arya says, I love how honest this podcast is, and the guest perspective is so valuable. Arya, thank you so much for taking the time and for your five-star review. We greatly appreciate it. Kim Becker spent her career helping women with cancer smile when they look in the mirror, but she never expected that she would be the one to hear the words, you have cancer. Kim has an incredibly unique story because she had colon cancer, but not exactly. So she's going to tell us how she came to be diagnosed with neuroendocrine tumors. Is that a good way to say it? Yes. It was just one, but yes. <laughs> yes. All right, Kim, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Take us back to the beginning before I hit record. You were sharing why you did not get a colonoscopy at the age of 50. So if you don't mind, I, I would like to start the story there. Sure. So I'm going to go back even a little further than that. And that sure. was... Um, I met my husband when I was 24 and um, we got married when I was 26 and he was 31. We were six years, he was six years older than I was. And uh, we had a great start to our marriage and, um, you know, young newlyweds like everybody was, you know, when they first get married. And three years after we got married, he was diagnosed with a very rare liver disease. And that kind of turned our world upside down. And we initially thought that it would just be something that it could be fixed and then it would be one and done and it would be over with. Well, that's not what happened. And so for 20 years, I was his caregiver. And so um, it, was a, it was a rare liver disease. Luckily, the doctors that were the world's most foremost authority happened to be in Indianapolis. So we were able to, to see the doctors there. And um, I remember the doctor saying to me, the name of his disease is primary sclerosing cholangitis. And I remember the doctor saying to me, you know, it'll never be the disease that will take Mike's life, but it will be an infection that they can't get a hold of. And that's what could be the end of his life. And we had ups and downs and ins and outs and lots of different trips to the emergency room and, you know, all those kind of things. And so um, he ended up, I think it was in June of 20. 16 ended up with a bowel obstruction. Anyway, it was just a series of unfortunate events, um, which led to him getting septic shock in May of 2017. And in June of 2017, I lost him. And so I was 50 and he was 56. Uh, our son was just getting ready to enter high school. And so um, I, I, I'm so sorry. It, yes, thank you. Me too. Cause he was an awesome, awesome human being. And, um, and he's missed but we do a lot now to make sure we keep his legacy alive every day. Um, and so, you know, that, that was part of it. So when I turned 50, I turned 50 in March, I lost him in June. Um, and actually we got a catastrophic loss in our business in April 
of 2017. Then I lost Mike in June of 2017. So needless to say, my health was not on the top of my radar. It was making sure that I kept our business alive. It was making sure that my son had a stellar high school career. And so I, I didn't think about me. It wasn't about me. It was about making sure that everybody around me was okay. So uh, the insurance that I had actually offered um, a, a health screening. And so I'm healthy. I'm not on any medications. Um, I don't, you know, take anything. I, you know, I was just one of those people. I work out every day and I've got, you know, 35, 40 pounds to lose like everybody else does most of the time. So, but other than that, I was, you know, I was, that was the only thing I was fear. You can check my eyes. You can check everything else. I don't want to step on the scale. <laughs> you can do anything else. So the healthcare provider comes and uh, they do the whole health screening. And one of the things that they did was they wanted you to do, it, it's not a Cologuard test, but it's similar to that where you take a sample, send it in and, you know, you're on your merry way. So I did all of that. So this was required or recommended I, by your insurance? It was recommended by the insurance. Yeah. They just wanted, you know, as part of the health thing, let's make sure that you're, you know, you're healthy inside and out kind of thing. Got and it. so okay. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll... I'll, I'm game. I, I didn't have anything to lose. Now, looking back, I will tell you that I did have symptoms that I chose to ignore because I just wrote them off. Like what? So I had had, um, it was, it was a, I, I don't know how to eloquently say this, but it was basically a diarrhea that like I couldn't control. Like there, like uh. I remember coming home, my son and I were coming home from a bowling event and uh, I had to pull over to a gas station. We had spent the night a couple of nights and I had to get the clean clothes out of my suitcase because it just, there wasn't anything, like it just came. There wasn't anything you could do. And I remember that there were three different episodes, um, you know, that were like that. And I just wrote them off. I wrote them off to being stress. I wrote them off to being- did you, Yeah. Did you think you had food poisoning? <laughs> I wrote them off to stress. I wrote it off to be something that I ate that maybe I shouldn't have eaten that didn't agree with me. Anything but cancer is what I wrote it off to be. I never thought that it was anything like that at all. And so looking back on that now, I'm like, okay, now I see that was something that needed my attention, but I didn't give it my attention. So moving forward, then I had the test done. I had the screening done. And so I literally sent the sample off and didn't think another thing about it. So I'm at my office and somebody from this clinic calls me and you know asks for me by name. I didn't recognize the number. Um, but I answered the phone anyway, and they're like, you know, this is so-and-so from wherever, and you sent a sample in, and we want you to know that we found some cells and that you need to go be checked by your doctor. And I'm like, who is this again? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> what cells? And she said, this is so-and-so. You did a health screening through your insurance company, and we found some things that are questionable, and you really need to go and have a colonoscopy done. You need to check with your doctor. And I'm like, Okay. So I get off the phone. My sister works with me and I'm like, this is really weird. And uh, can, can I just pause for a second? Yes. Don't you love the euphemisms? We found something questionable. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's never anything. Not bad. No. It's freaking bad yeah. is what it is. That's right. well, <laughs> it's yeah. And that's all they said. We, and they actually used questionable cells is what they said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Sorry. that was there. I know that was the way that they told me. So so I, I called my doctor's office then who I'm good friends with her daughter and my son graduated. You know, they went all the way through grade school and high school together. So I called Betsy and I'm like, hey, I had this test done and I hadn't even been to the doctor. So I had to like reestablish patient doctor relationship because I just don't go. 
And um, so I said, can you, can I come in and see you? They're telling me you've got this, blah, 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 blah. Yep. No problem. So I go into the doctor's office. I told her what happened. She goes, I'm sure it's nothing. She said, it's a gimmick. They do this all the time. I hate it that they put my older patients through this, but you need a colonoscopy because you didn't have one when you were 50. Let's just go ahead and get the colonoscopy done. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm cool with that. That's fine. So I remember we went in the, it must've been like sometime in October, I guess I went in and it would have been like October of 2019. And, um, Went into the. Now, is this your primary care physician referred you to a GI yes. to do the colonoscopy? Yeah. Okay. We have like Got a it. clinic that off, you know, does those, but yes, that was it. So go in, have the test done, literally not thinking anything, you know, joking around about the doc, you know, with the doctor when I get in there and stuff. And um, it ended up that when I woke up, it was, we found something and we know, won't know for sure until pathology comes back, but you need to get this checked out. And I'm like, Okay. And so God love my sister. There's 12 years of difference between the two of us. Um, I'm the oldest, she's the youngest, and then there's two years in between. And so this was my biggest fear after being my husband's advocate and caregiver for so long. And then I lost him. It was, who's going to take care of me if something happens to me? And you never want any, nobody ever wants anything like this to happen. But you know what? I have a, I've got, like I said, I've got three sisters. Luckily, my mom is still very young and spunky for her age. And so I was surrounded by love and support. I couldn't have asked for anything better. So again, I don't know if it's because of who I am in the community or what they found. I I don't know. I had a colonoscopy on Wednesday. I had a CAT scan on Thursday. I saw the surgeon on Friday. Whoa. It happened that fast. Yes. Okay. So they were worried, obviously. I'm assuming they were worried. Okay. So we go in, worried. we sit down, you know, with the surgeon. He's like, you know, I'm, I see what they're talking about. There's a few lymph nodes that are, I'm a little, you know, questionable on. And so we get everything scheduled, but there's still nothing at this point in time. There's no positive cancer diagnosis, so to speak. They're just, I guess they're acting as it is, but there's not a, there's not a definite yet. So okay. I go, we get everything scheduled. So I'm scheduled two weeks out for surgery all right, I know this is going to happen. I just kind of put it out of my mind. So one day I'm by myself. Um, I'm in the grocery store. My phone rings. I always answer my phone. So um, answered my phone and it was the doctor on the other end. I am literally in the frozen food section of my grocery store. And the doctor calls me and says, I wanted you to know that your pathology reports came back and you have cancer. And I'm, I said, excuse me? And he said, everything came back. He said, the tumor that we found is malignant. But if you had to have cancer, this is a really good one to have. <laughs> and by them saying that, following up with that, why they think that that's a good thing to say, I'm not quite sure. Um, and I just went numb. Like I had nothing. I didn't have any emotions. I didn't have feeling. And you know, the biggest thing for me was now I have a child at this point in time as a sophomore in high school. And how do you go tell that child that his only remaining parent has cancer? Right. And so right. it, it, I just was not, I, that's the only thing I had was not. That's a good question. How did you tell yourself? Well, and so who had just lost his father. We sat down with him. Um, and again, my sister and brother-in-law were phenomenal. 
And what we did was we left my son on a need to know basis. So the first thing we said to him was, hey, they found something. Mom's got to have surgery. And we left it at that. The biggest thing for him was my husband was airlifted from a local hospital down to a hospital in Indianapolis. And he was on life support probably the last five days of his life. And I remember after telling my son that I was going to have to have surgery, he said, mom, I don't want to see you after surgery. And I said, that's okay, honey, you don't have to. But I think it was because he was fearful that he would see me much like he saw his dad on life support with all of the bags hanging and, you know, all those kind of things. And I'm like, you know what, this is completely up to you. You don't, you know, you don't have to do anything. So I was really smart and instilling the school counselor that was very close to us who had already known that my kid passed away and that Seth was dealing with that. My son happened to be going to a, um, a Catholic youth retreat the weekend of my surgery. So I contacted the leaders, said, this is what's going on. I'm going to be in the hospital. I said, what happens if he wants to come? He didn't drive at that time. I said, if he decides he wants to leave and he wants to come see me, and he said, we will get an adult. We will bring him to you. Don't worry about it. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. It was just awesome. Just the support that we had. It was awesome. It was awesome. Was the plan for surgery, was it to go in and remove this tumor that's in your colon? But at that point, were they still assuming this is colorectal cancer? Did they know it was a neuroendocrine tumor at that point? I don't know. I I think they did know that it was a neuroendocrine. I don't remember. So the difference is, from what I understand, is is that colon cancer grows on the inside of your colon, and then if it perforates that colon wall, you're in trouble when it goes from the inside out. Mine was the opposite. So my tumor actually grew on the outside of my colon and then perforated in. That's how they found it. And then I had... They took 21 lymph nodes out. So they took 14 inches of my colon and then they, yeah. And they took um, 21 lymph nodes, but it was just the four that was around the tumor that were affected. And so they weren't really worried, but I, but I do have to tell you, so I'd like to share this story with you uh, and hope to inspire the rest of your listeners. And that is, you know, the one thing I learned is that this is your battle and you get to fight it any way you want to. So I made the decision. Amen. Yes. So I made the decision that if I was going down and they were putting me, they were putting me under, that I was going under my way. So my anesthesiologist came in and the surgeon came in and I said, okay, you guys, this is what I want. I said, you can put me under. I said, but I want, don't stop believing by journey playing. I want the entire <laughs> operating room singing and then you can put me out. Oh my God. Really? Yeah. That's what you, oh. Yes. So we get in there and so the anesthesiologist is like, are you serious? And I'm like, I am absolutely serious. That's what I want. So I, you know, we're in the pre-op room. You're only supposed to have two people. I've got 15, you know, nobody's (laughs) kind of let me go. And so they're wheeling me down. And one of my really good friends worked at the hospital. And so she had Spotify on her phone. And so she had don't stop believing playing. So I get into the operating room and the anesthesiologist said to me, look, you just heard Don't Stop Believing." We'll play any other Journey song right now, but we're not playing Don't Stop Believing" right now. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So they put on Journey and they had all these, you know, things playing and they they didn't tell me this and I'm glad they didn't tell me this, but they ended up giving me an epidural. And again, I was by myself without anybody and I didn't have any drugs with my son. I had uh, 
for said, but I didn't have an epidural or anything with my son. So this was all new to me. And I'm glad I didn't know in advance because I think I would have freaked out. So they got me, you know, they're leaning over the side of the bed and, you know, telling me to relax and this and that. So anyway, I got all that done and I laid down and the anesthesiologist said, okay, here we go. And so they literally played Don't Stop Believing. The entire operating room was singing just a small town girl. And that's the last thing I remember. And I went out. And the next thing I remember, I was, I woke up in recovery. And I tell that story on purpose because people think that they have to do what the doctor tells them to do. You don't have to do anything. You know, they work for you. That's right. And so at that point in time, I thought, doggone it. This sucked. You know, I remember saying, really, God, being a widow wasn't enough. Now you needed to get, what lesson do I need to learn that I have to go through cancer now? But I thought, okay, there's got to be lessons in this. And that's what all the time I kept asking. Instead of asking why me, I just, I kept taking a pause and saying, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this? What am I, what am I supposed to learn from? There's got to be a lesson in here. What am I supposed to learn from this? I'll never forget. I, <laughs> I told we were, uh, we were out in an evening and I had two girlfriends Um, that I'm still very close to. And I pulled them aside to kind of tell them, you know, very gently that this is what happened. And I I said, hey, I got something to tell you. And I said, you know, I had a colonoscopy and they found a tumor and they both looked at me and they said, well, we thought you were going to tell us you had a boyfriend. And I said, well, I'd much rather be telling you that I had a boyfriend. I go, no, but I have a tumor and that's way different. And so same thing, you know, just the way that you go about things and being able to tell your story and tell your journey, it's, it's completely up to you as to how you do that. So I was very fortunate, you know, recovery was tough. Um, so they, why, why was it tough? Talk, to you know, a little bit about it was that. very tough because of the fact that my home was two story. I didn't have, a, I didn't have a spouse and I literally had a huge incision that was probably eight inches long. They, they had to cut me all the way open. And please tell me you moved down to the first floor. I actually moved in with my mom. Okay. And my mom had a condo and, you know, my son was there. And so I can't remember. He may have been, I don't think he was driving at that point in time, or he'd just recently gotten his driver's license. And so God love my mom who was, you know, very good at that. But I remember, you know, when my husband was alive, um, he had biliary catheters. And so they were catheters that, that went from the outside of the body in and um, and they were these foreign objects. And he would always say he looked like a science experiment when he would stand there. And it didn't bother me. You just become immune to that. But it's one thing to look at someone else's body that has the holes with the tubes hanging out. And then you look at your own body and you see this incision that's there and these other small incisions that are around. And emotionally, that was really difficult for me to have to change that dressing and to change those bandages and do that by yourself. And you know, you just wonder, will I ever get past this, right? Will normalcy ever kick back in again? Um, you know, sleeping on the couch. Did your son ever see those? I never, drains? no, I never showed him that. Afterwards, I showed him the scar um, because I actually took a, we have um, some friends that own a skincare company and they talked about all of these amazing transformations that they had on scars. And I'm like, I want to be a testimony. And so I had my son take a before picture of my scar um, and then I used the product on it and stuff so that I could get, eliminate that, you know, it wasn't there anymore. Um, But, you know, I just remember it it was just, my independence was taken away. I couldn't drive, right? you know, but here's the thing. You can control the controllables. That's the best thing to be able to do. So I couldn't drive. I couldn't live in my own house. 
But you know what I could do? I could get up every day and take a shower. I could get up every day and do my hair. I could get up every day and put my makeup on. And that's what I did. And I said to my mom, you know what? We got to go somewhere. I don't care if we go to a grocery store. I don't care if we go to a warehouse store. I don't care. We need to go somewhere. I needed to walk. I needed to keep moving. I needed to make sure that I couldn't stay in her condo. And then it was, you know, because of the colon, it was a lot of soft foods. So they had to make sure that the digestion, you know, so it was noodles or mashed potatoes or lots of jello, you know, during that time, just to make sure that it was, so it was, again, you controlled the things that you can control. I remember um, I had surgery on a Thursday and then I was released from the hospital Sunday. So it must've been that a week later, so probably 10 days after surgery. I had gotten up and showered and I'd gone to mass with my mom and my doctor, my primary doctor had sat right behind me. And um, she looked at me and she goes, you don't look like you had surgery 10 days ago. And I go, good. That's exactly what I want. I don't want people to know. I don't want, I don't want to wear it on my sleeve. You know, I want to be able to get through this and I want to be able to, to look as normal as possible so that I can get to the other side of it. Now, the mistake that I'm, so, so wait, go ahead. I'm going to ask you something because I find it interesting, the contrast. So you're openly talking about your story now, not just with me, but you, you're very open and you share it and you definitely come across that way, but you didn't want people to know then. I didn't. Why? Because of it. I wasn't ready to be vulnerable. You know, I, I oh. felt that I had a lot of people questioning, could I keep my business up and going? Cause my husband was my, my best friend he was my husband and he was my business partner. And so all of a sudden now I was left to run the business by myself. And so I felt like there was a lot of questioning on that employees, team, community, whatever that was. And so I'm like, okay, look, I got to strengthen up here. I got to, I got to buck up. I got to be able to tell them that I can do this. And so then I get diagnosed with cancer. So then there's more questions. We're bugging out. She can't do this. She can't keep it going. There's no way for her to be able to do this. And so I wasn't ready to be able to share that story. I wasn't. I remember it was probably about six months out when I, I had a, we had a Facebook group that was probably about 50 people that were in it. Those were the only people that knew what was going on. And it was probably about six months out. I had a podcast. I have a podcast myself. And that's actually when I came clean with what I had gone through. I know, clean. right? You feel like, <laughs> like you committed a crime know, or right? something. I know. <laughs> I know. But it's like this big fat secret that you just carry around with you. Um, and so I think it was tough. And and it was the other thing too, again, you know, I find um, Google is a, your best friend and your worst nightmare all at the same time. Totally agree. So totally agree. I was sitting on the couch and I was on, I knew at this point in time that they had found a tumor. I knew that they'd taken out 21 lymph nodes. I knew that four lymph nodes were affected. All of a sudden you start Googling that, I'm gone, right? If it would have been colon cancer, it was stage four colon cancer and I was done. So I, um, I, remember, <laughs> I remember going to lunch with my sister, literally like talking about a will and her taking my son and all the things. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I Googled it and it's stage four and it's not good. And it's, you know what I mean? You just literally, you can talk yourself into things and you can talk yourself out of things. So I think that was another reason too. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what was happening. I didn't know whether, how, what the outcome was going to be like. And so until I was for sure, I didn't want to say anything to anybody else. 
Okay, that that makes that makes sense. What did you have, if any, post treatment after surgery? Luckily, I didn't have to have anything. They were they got it with the surgery, which was great. But I was monitored. And so it was every three weeks. Well, I had to go down for, um, and that was unnerving. Um, I didn't think that I was claustrophobic. I had to go down for a PET scan. And it was a, a very specialized PET scan that I had to go down to Indianapolis for because of the type of cancer that I had. As you said earlier, it can come up in different places. And so, right, right. A, a PET scan uses uh, nuclear imaging yeah. for people who don't know. So it is, it is, yeah, used for very specific cancer types. But they had to use a specific nuclear medicine on top of it right. being a specific because of my type of cancer. And so it would right, show exactly. up like any little cell that was in there. That that's what they did. So um, we, I, we went down to Indianapolis, and so you know, again, there was, and that wasn't until January. So my surgery was in November. And then January, we went down and, and did the scan. And, um, you know, I think it's just there wasn't any post-treatment, but there was mental work to be done afterwards. Um, it's a, it's really, it, it truly is a mental game. It, and then I went to the doctor every three months. You know, here it was. I didn't go to a doctor at all. <laughs> and I was going every three months. And once a year, I have a CAT scan. And Every time, please tell me you don't have to have a colonoscopy every three. Months. I do not, thank goodness. I had one. Oh, I know, I know, I know. The prep is worse than anything else, but I but I but I tell you what, I'm a big advocate for it now because of the fact of what I went through. I tell people all the time, all my siblings that turned fifty, I was like, look, they're like, ah, we don't want to do it, and I'm like, you really need to, you really need to do this. Okay, time out. Yeah. They didn't want to do it after what you had been through. They were willing to do the colagard. And they, they said to me, Kim, we'll make a deal with you. We'll do the cola garden. If something comes up, then we'll go get the colonoscopy. My brother-in-laws were the worst. Um, but they're like, we don't want to go get a colonoscopy done. I'm like, you need to go get this done. You need, because it's prevent. And here it is, right? They found it early. Right. I was able just to do it with just surgery. And we luckily. And they found it early and it, and it was a different kind of tumor. I mean. Right. Well, know? and so, yeah. so here's the kicker. So we did the genetic testing. Because I have a sister that is probably nine years out right now, and she had a neuroendocrine tumor. Oh, wow. And, her, and they are rare for people who don't know. It, they're extremely, extremely rare. rare. So what what did the genetic testing show? Nothing yet. I don't know that we'll ever get them. But um, okay. she, hers was in her cervix. And they actually had to do a colonoscopy. And actually, my this my sister. So I'm the oldest. My second sister is two years younger. My third sister is five years younger than my baby sister is 12 years younger. So the third sister in the row, Tina, you know what? She got all the luck. You know, we go out. She's the one that buys the lottery tickets. She goes to the casino. She wins. I could spend my whole life's fortune and never win a thing. And so this is what had, she had a malignant tumor that grew on the outside of her cervix, like what mine was. You are not going to believe this. There was a benign tumor that grew exactly in the same spot on the inside of her cervix. So it never went through so the wall. Wow. And the doctor said that had it gone through the wall, they would have been dealing with a completely different story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Absolutely. they were able, they did a hysterectomy on her. She did have to go through chemo, um, you know, through all of that and the steroids and stuff. But, um, but yes. And I said to them, I'm like, I can't, 
the doctors don't believe that it's linked. They don't believe that there's anything hereditary. I'm like, how can you say that? I said, there are two of us that are same parents and this neuroendocrine, neuroendocrine tumor is so rare for two of us to be yeah. able to have that. I don't, I don't see how you can say that that's, it's, not, I don't believe in coincidences anyway, but I don't know how they can say that. That's just, so anyway, we're doing the genetic testing and we may never know. We may never know. Well, and they may not have identified what that genetic marker is for neuroendocrine tumors, right? That's right. We're a lot further along with different kinds of breast cancer and BRCA gene and things like that. That's right. So it might just be just a complete lack of understanding. And of course, doctors never want to admit that they might not know something. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly Yeah, you know, I I want to give you so much credit and kudos that that when something was finally found, even though you were numb, you moved forward and also just doing, you know, the surgery your way and, and everything. Kim, what was your worst moment in all of it? Being in the hospital when nobody was there. Mm. Um, again, my sister was amazing, came up, you know, was at the hospital all the time. You know, but then you, you know, you've got your visiting hours and stuff and people can come and then they have to leave. And so laying in that hospital bed, because I was in the hospital for four days. So I got in Thursday afternoon for surgery, all day Friday, all day Saturday, and I didn't get released until Sunday. So there were several nights where you're just there alone. I mean, you've got nurses around, but not... um having your family around is awesome and incredible when you don't have your person that's there to make sure that, you know, to check on you. Um, there was a lot of time just to reflect. There was a lot of time to, um, just to think back too much alone time, especially, you know, being a caregiver for my husband, there were a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas, you know, during that time. Yeah. But I think that for me, because I'm such a people person and I'm around people all the time that having that stillness and that quiet in that dark hospital room by myself was really, really, really difficult. And you, you know, you don't know, right. At one point in time, I had my, my blood pressure was bottoming out. Um, they, and my sister was, I'm glad she was there and they had to come and they gave me a, a whole liter of sugar water. And then they were testing my sugar all the time because you know, I said, and I kept saying, look, I didn't come because they gave you a liter of sugar right. water. Right. right. And yeah. I'm like, look, I did not come in a diabetic. I do not expect I'm not a diabetic. You know what I mean? Oh and so God. there's the heparin shots that they had to give you and they're testing my sugar all the time. And my finger, you know, the tips of my fingers were just so bruised. And, you know, so it was, it was all of those things that were, but it was that alone time. Like, how did I get here? Yeah. You know, how did I, how did I get to this point in time? It was just, it was really tough. That was really tough. You know, for someone who did not want to be vulnerable before, you were just mm -hmm. now. So thank you. Thank you for that. How about what was your best moment? You know, my best moment was, uh, so my, um, I sent my sister and one of my teammates, we, they had had a trip booked already for our business. And so my sister's like, I'm going to cancel it. I'm like, you're not canceling it. We have two other sisters and a mom. 
you need to go do what we already set out to do. Somebody else will take care of me. So Tina, my sister that had the, the cancer tumor like mine, came on Sunday and picked me up from the hospital. And uh, my son was at the retreat that I had said that I told you about. And um, that did work out. It was perfect because he was around people that loved him, that could support him, that gave him all of the things. And when he didn't understand, somebody was right there to pick him up. And, and, and two of the moms, I'm in a mom's group where there's four of us moms. We all have kids the same age, sons actually. And um, two of the moms went and got him and did bring him up to the hospital one night to see me. And so um, on Sunday, um, I was being released from the hospital and at this retreat, they always do like an end of the retreat thing where they do a video of all their favorite magic moments and all those things. And my sister took me there. My son didn't know I was coming. Oh, I just got chills. Oh my gosh. Was he really surprised? Was was all of the people that were there that had been praying for me all weekend and like the priest and the, you know, the other moms and stuff, they're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? What, you know, how- <laughs> you know I'm like, well, I got a ride. I didn't drive. And, uh, and so when I saw him, yeah, it, but it was him, you know, he came and got me and I, I always wanted to be one of those mom. I always wanted to be the cool mom. I, oh, I always wanted to be the cool mom. I wanted to be the mom that all the kids loved. Right. And so I get there and, you know, my son comes up to me and then it's this influx of all these kids, oh, you know, that are like, oh my oh. gosh, we can't believe you're here, you know? So that was, that was the best moment. Tell me, Kim, what's one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning? Stay away from Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's great advice. And you're not the first person to say that. No, I it's- would not have... Um, I, I wouldn't, I, um, I, I would have stayed away from Google. I think the other thing is that um, I wish I wouldn't have been so fearful, right? I wish I would have embraced what was happening with peace instead of fear because the fear robbed me of a lot of things along the way. You know, when I get fearful, I get geeked up and I get, you know, I get real nervous and, and there, you know, I snap at people and, and I don't mean to be that way, but, and I'm not saying to be aloof. There's a difference. There's a difference. Right. right I'm not saying to be aloof, but I just wish I would have been more, okay, this is my path. Right. And just take it all in for what it was and be able to accept it. I journaled a lot because that's what helped me process my thoughts and helped me process my feelings. And I did that after Mike died too. Every day for a year, I wrote, my, wrote Mike a letter. Because I felt like here's all the things that he's missing out on. And so that was my way of being able to communicate with him. And so I was able to journal and it's okay to get mad and it's okay. But there are times where I just wanted to be, I just wish that I would have been more at peace with things to be able to say, all right, this is just my, this is, this is my role. These, these are my lessons. These are, you know, these are the things that, that I should be learning. And given my work, it gave me a completely different perspective too. And so I want to be more grateful for that um, because of the fact that um, you can't be grateful and fearful at the same time. And so I want to be more grateful. Okay. What about if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? I would allow, um, I, I think everyone should be assigned a patient advocate because I'll tell you, you know, I I did not want Mike to die, obviously. 
but you know, he had a compromised immune system and going through the pandemic, I've often sat back and thought how different our lives would have been had he survived. You know, we wouldn't have been able to do anything. I would have lived in constant fear. And in true Mike Becker fashion, he would have gone to the hospital and I couldn't have gone with him and he wouldn't have had an advocate there. And the last 18 months to two years of his life, that's what I did was I advocated for him. And, and when I was in the hospital and my sugar dropped out and my blood pressure, I don't know, it was something silly, like 60 over 40 or something like that. And Trisha was the one that said, you've got to go get somebody. How many people are in that hospital and don't have anybody to advocate for them? And why doesn't healthcare appoint somebody then to advocate for that person? Speak on their behalf when they can't speak for themselves. Yeah. Well, you are touching on the whole reason for the existence of cancer. You to teach people who, whether they're patients or caregivers or even survivors, how to become their own advocates, Mm -hmm. how to stand up for themselves. That's right. You have to be. Yeah. You absolutely have to be. All right, Kim. I'm so excited to do this with you. Are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire? Okay. I hope so. (laughs) Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Vivacious. I was thinking lively, so I was on the same (laughs) wavelength. I was there. Before you die, what's the last song you want to hear? Um, it's a Beatles song. Um, it goes something like, sing it. I, I'm trying to, I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, <laughs> there are places I remember long ago, but I don't know what the rest of it is, but. Um, in my life. In my life. Go. That's it. That's the last song I want to hear. That's the, last, that's the last song I want to hear. What about the last meal you want to eat? <laughs> Pizza. <laughs> right? I, Pizza. I, I want to eat anything that is really difficult for me to eat right now. And, and, yeah, that's what I want. Yeah, I'm like pizza, ice cream, wine, like bring Any it on. I want it all. Right. What about the last person or people you want to see? Um, my son and my family. And the last words you will speak. I love you. And aside from Cancer You, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I think this is a perfect time to tell people what you do and also how they can get in touch with you. So um, 16 years ago, my husband and I started an organization called Hello Gorgeous. And our goal is to make sure that women with cancer can smile when they look in the mirror. And so our website, which is hellogorgeous.org, has all of those resources. We found out you don't know what you don't know. And what we hear over and over again, that it's the doctor's job to treat her cancer. But I really feel like it's my job to make sure she looks really good while she's going through it. And so on the- Is this inspired by your sister by chance? No, no. It's truly a calling. It's just, I had a very successful salon and sold the salon. And I, it's just something God tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you do this? And I said, okay. So yeah, it's pretty cool. I really do have the best job in the whole world. Very cool. HelloGorgeous.org. HelloGorgeous.org. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, They can email me at kbecker at HelloGorgeous.org. And we're on Instagram and Facebook, and we even have a TikTok now too. So you can catch me on any of those social media platforms as well. Okay. All right. And great name, by the way. Hello, Gorgeous. 
Yeah, great name. There's a whole story. So, so just a quick thing. So Mike was the one that Mike was the one that came up with that. So when we opened the salon, Mike wanted to name the salon Hello Gorgeous, and I told him that was the stupidest name I've ever heard. And he said, no, no, it'll be really great because every time you answer the phone, you get to say, hello, gorgeous, and it'll make people smile. And I said, yeah, no, we're not doing it. So we owned the salon for 10 years. And when this fell on my heart that I said, this is, I told him, I said, we need to have this mobile day spa that caters to cancer patients, this beautiful, elegant palace on wheels that'll show up just a few feet from these women door, make them feel like a queen for a day during a time where they don't feel very special. And he didn't want to hear anything about it. And we were walking into a McDonald's play area and I grabbed a hold of his arm and 10 years had passed from this moment that he wanted to name the salon to this moment right here. And when I grabbed a hold of his arm, I said, you know what, Mike, this is supposed to be called Hello Gorgeous. I said, because that's how these women deserve to be greeted is with Hello Gorgeous. So when Mike passed away, um, I designed his headstone and the logo with Hello Gorgeous is on his headstone. So that when people walk through the cemetery, that they still get to read Hello Gorgeous and they get to smile. I love it. I love it. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that extra part of the story. You're welcome. Kim, it was so nice of you and so wonderful for you to come on. And I really appreciate you telling not only your story, but a little bit of your sisters and of Mike's as well. Thank you for having me. I always love the opportunity, you know, to just, I feel like there's somebody else out there that maybe will be inspired or moved to take action on something that maybe they've been putting off. And so that's my whole goal. So. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.